Hello, welcome back to the Song by Song podcast. I'm Amy Nicholson. I'm Martin Zoltz-Holstwick. And I'm Sam Pei. And we are about to talk about the movie Shortcuts by Robert Altman. I'll tell you something. You know, I don't know who you think would want to look at your sad middle-aged ass in Don't you talk to me like that. Don't you come back here. I'm not taking you back no more. You understand? Yeah. No more. No more. I'm not taking you back. I'm coming back. Slobbered all over honey like that. It was so embarrassing. I never touched honey. I didn't say you touched her. I said you slobbered on her. How come you don't wear your wedding ring to work anymore? Oh, you're such a bullshit artist. You're the one chipping away at our mansion of love, baby. Not me. Why don't you go get drunk and pee on Hermitee's drink? I'm gonna go it. get drunk. I'm gonna get drunk right now. Damn it. Shortcuts is a film from 1993 by Robert Altman that is almost impossible to describe. <laughs> it it takes place um, in Los Angeles, where I happen to live, and it is a series of vignettes of, I think people have tallied up 22 characters who intersect, collide, bump into each other, turn out to be related, basically making a mess of their human lives in the sprawling suburbs of Los Angeles with a bazillion characters, including someone that you guys love very much, Tom Waits. Yeah, that's an amazing synopsis. I don't think we would have... That was like, what, 30 seconds? It's a really complicated film. It's it's incredibly detailed. And and I think probably while we have uh, done uh, more in-depth synopses in the past, I think probably it's best to uh, mostly leave it there because the number of characters, the number of storylines, and also the way that those storylines intersect is so complicated it it makes me think more of a um a condensed tv series rather than a, a particularly oh, long yeah. film you can imagine it being done as like a netflix original now as like six episodes you're right yeah. you can kind of imagine that if altman was had was alive and pitching yeah. this idea today and saying i want to do a thing that combines all of these characters from the, the short stories of raymond carver and combine them in different ways. They would say, like, great, here are six seasons. Go for it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah get on with it. But instead they gave him, well, they gave him three hours and eight minutes. Is that the one time of the film? Something yeah, like I re- yeah. He was trying at one point, I think, while he was making shortcut to, shortcuts to convince people to let him do it as two films. Yeah, oh, really? But, yeah. but that's always been his secret dream, is like, how can I make this film as long as possible? <laughs> I just, it didn't feel that long to me, I guess because so much happens and you're really constantly just trying to go, like, who is that character? Oh, yeah, they're, back, they're the person that we saw two scenes ago that was doing the... Um, Maybe a way to uh, into this conveniently is to talk about the Tom White storyline because I think it yes. illustrates the kind of tone of the film as well as you know featuring Tom White's. And this is sort um, of where the film opens as well. We have a few. He's the first character on screen. That's pretty exciting. much, yeah. Unless you count well, his, 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 his and li- helicopters, then uh, yeah. Oh, I guess we see the helicopter. So uh, yeah, but um, certainly but his. But it depends on if you count a, as a helicopter as a character. Well. That's that's what we're here to debate. That's I fine. mean, is this Transformers? Is, is this oh, shortcuts? Tra- yeah, sure. yeah. It's, he's already prefiguring <laughs> the 21st century uh, Transformers trend. Um, so he's uh, Tom Waits plays a limo driver called Earl Piggott, uh, whose wife, played by Lily, Lily Tomlin. Doreen Piggott. Doreen Piggott. There we go. What a beautiful name. Uh, she works as a waitress. Um, and so we see him visit her at work. Uh, he's gone sort of started drinking again which is obviously a bit of a problem if he's a limo driver but uh, something she doesn't seem to like um and they have this sort of strange interaction where there are other um patrons of the diner kind of eyeing her up when she reaches down to get some napkins or something like that just kind of looking at her bum um and he gets upset by this and storms out and that's our introduction to the character really uh, uh and as the sort of film goes on we see these characters coming back at different different points um here uh, Earl goes to a jazz bar, he goes to her house, and um, by the end of the film, uh, they're sort of reconciled. Uh, yeah. Having had a, a, this argument and, and 
um, fallen out at other points in the, in the film because of his drinking and his kind of irritating <laughs> behaviour. They're sort of one of the few couples that seems to have a kind of a happy ending, really, or at least an un- what seems like an unambiguously happy ending for, 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 for their particular relationship. They, what I think is so interesting about the character of Earl is I think you change your idea of who he is throughout the entire film. Mm-hmm. Here you first see him as kind of this shady-looking limo driver, as you see, mm-hmm. and he's glancing in his back seat. There's a couple kind of hooking up. She's very bimbo-y and pink and looking very stereotypically L.A. Right. And then he rolls up into Johnny's Diner, this iconic filming location here in Los Angeles. But that's been torn down right, that place. I think it's here but empty. Like, right. I think they really, I think they still have it here, but only for shooting locations because oh, it's such a great shooting location. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it's a beautiful diner, isn't it? It's got that amazing kind of—I uh, don't know how do you describe that kind of rock wall effect that seems like mm-hmm. such a Cal- Southern Californian. It does diner. giant booths. I, yeah, as yeah. a Californian, I'm very particular about always trying to eat at places like that to keep them alive. Have you been there? It's never been open the entire time I've lived here. Uh, I think it's only ever been for filming locations. But so, it's right next to this 99 cent store I used to go to all the time when I was really broke. So I drove by it all the time. It's um it's also in a, a suburb of Los Angeles called Downey, uh, which is the setting of a podcast called Moonface a podcast. Other podcast listeners, mm. which uh, came out last year, it was a very very good podcast. Recommend listening to that. But yeah, like he shows up at her diner, and you you can't tell if he's her ex or not. Either they're a little bit frosty towards each other. You can tell that she doesn't seem that happy that he's turned up at her workplace. No, <laughs> she thinks of him as a bit of a scrub. She's like, my boss is watching <laughs> me. The Greek, like, do not order anything you can't pay for. And there's right, a right, sense right. that you can tell right away he takes advantage of her a little bit yeah and she's always trying to set up boundaries and then when the men start staring at her ass when she's bending over to get the butter he doesn't stand up and confront them he just leaves and gets mad at her he's angry at her for some reason yeah like it's interesting when you compare i I read the short story it's based on the carver short story yeah um and it has um it has many of the same scenes uh it doesn't have the reconciliation at the end um, and in fact, in the Carver's short story, um, he, as a result of that incident where these, di- these patrons are kind of like ogling her, they get uh, that evening in the in their home. He tells her to go on a diet, and so a lot of this short story is about her going on a diet, making herself sick, and then um, him going back to the diner and like going, "Hey, check that board out." And there's this weird sense that so much of his self esteem is is tied up in in the way that men look at her or don't look at her. It's really, really strange. That's so funny because it doesn't really translate when Lily Tomlin has a great ass. Do you know? <laughs> he like, he's like, nobody wants to see your middle-aged ass, but clearly everybody does and we yeah. get to see it and we're like, it's lovely. Yeah, it's a really, uh, I feel uncomfortable saying she's got a great middle-aged ass given that that's the perspective of the Oakland <laughs> Diners, but she does have a great middle-aged ass. Um, yeah, there's a certain, like, they've certainly changed it from that. Like The, the, um, the short story is called they're not your husband um, yes. and it's all about like the, the pressure that Earl is putting on Doreen and the, the, that, that sort of sense of expectation uh, to to meet his standards and to sort of not concern herself either with the standards of other diner patrons or even the the concern that her um, her colleagues are expressing about her losing weight and looking tired and all this kind of thing. It's interesting isn't it how they update it so the, in 1993 when Altman or 1992 when Altman filmed this like he obviously thought it wouldn't be a, a reasonable or realistic or likable storyline for Earl to go home and say, you need, you're fat, you need to lose weight. Like, as much as this film is po- populated with very sexist men, mm. that is kind of a step too far of kind of 1950s sexism, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I wonder what the choice was. Was it, well, I want Lily Tomlin in this film. This is my best character for her. 
she's clearly not overweight. So do we just get rid of that subplot? Well, listening to um, reading about what um, Altman wrote about um uh, working or working with uh, Carver's text, uh, he wrote uh, an introduction to a, a collection of short stories called "Collaborating with Carver" in '93, um, and it, it definitely seems that he was talking to Carver's widow and uh, being very upfront about the idea that he was going to be changing stories that he was using and inventing new characters and splicing different ideas together, overlapping all of these stories and sort of like going for the sentiment and the tone and this idea of like lives wandering through um, uh, uh, people wandering through their lives and interacting and not necessarily coming to clear, uh, (laughs) clear plot driven Climaxes. I think it's important to note that the original short stories weren't set in Los Angeles. They were set in the wider Pacific Northwest, where um, Carver lived. Uh, and the characters didn't intersect. They were essentially separate stories. So, I mean, is this Altman doing an Altman thing? Because he did that with Nashville, didn't he, where the, these stories all intersect at a convention. Is it, him, is it him saying this is the sort of story I like to tell as a complete film? I mean, it's interesting. Like, it has the same screenwriter as Nashville. Right, And she did a ton of work, of research to do that. You know, she went to Nashville, wandered right. around, like, observed people, really saw how that town fit together and all the aspirations of people there, the kind of patriotic emptiness, jingoism that I think she saw in Nashville. And in a way, to me, short cl- Shortcuts, having just seen Nashville, feels much more streamlined. You don't have right. so much of that Alt- Altman-esque everybody talking on and on top of each other that we could be right. doing here on this podcast. It's, sure. <laughs> it's a lot cleaner and simpler to understand. It's a lot more commercial than a film like than a film like Nashville. Isn't, we were talking about the film Magnolia this morning, and I was uh, for me that is the film I've I've seen certainly that is most clearly influenced by Shortcuts. And it wasn't that long afterwards, was it? it was a couple no, that of was ninety nine. So that's only oh, six years, years later. Um, and to me, that has another level of polish, like. Um, uh, I don't know if this is the right sort of film making vocabulary, but there's a sort of there's a discussion in shortcuts of a lot of like static cameras and then kind of characters wander in and out. Whereas Magnolia feels like more tradi- traditional film with kind of cutting between angles. It feels more like a slick feature film. I think that's something that Altman loved to kind of do was like see. I mean, he he gets more and more focused. I think as his career goes on, when you have something like Mash, mm. his very first big studio film. He's got these giant wide shots and there's people having important conversations in the back that he doesn't even let you hear. You just see that they're doing it and other right. people are doing other things. And he never adds the numbers together so you know what's happening. Yeah, interesting. And then he he gets more and more targeted. And I think Shortcuts comes out right after he makes probably his most commercial film, I think, The Player, yeah. which I, I love because it's such a Los Angeles story. But that feels like much more like a... I mean, there is some of that overlap, but it's much more like a single narrative, isn't it? The exactly. Yeah, yeah it's, it's almost like he's... Can we say a, a guy like Altman, who's such a crank, is going commercial? <laughs> Maybe he got sick of not getting work. But he, he worked throughout his career, right? Like, even though he sort of considered himself an outsider, like, he, he was constantly working. Yeah, the Bernie Sanders model. If I'm an outsider, <laughs> I swear. <laughs> well, really, if I growl enough, you're going to believe me. I think that there's an awful lot of trust that he puts in both the script and his actors. They're, 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 they're not always locked off shots, but there's an awful lot of long takes where he... And and it's not quite that noirish thing where he's like a voyeur of what's going on. He's 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 invested and involved enough in in the story that's taking place. But it feels like he's a filmmaker with an awful lot of trust in the material and the people that he's working with. Yeah, that's what you really seem to hear. You know, because I go back and forth on whether or not his films have levels of misogyny that I find too much or not enough. 
not, I mean, not, not, not enough misogyny. But because I do believe that, you know, there are films where he's really working through ideas of what misogyny looks like. Mm. And then I think there's films where he gets super misogynist. But the one thing that is uniform is that all the actors, all the actors and actresses he works with still love working with him. Like they, mm. people like um, Sally Kellerman, who played Hot Lips Houlihan in MASH, mm. still defends that character because he trusted her to create a performance. You know, he trusted her to be a real actress and not just be like a beautiful blonde in the background, but right. to to be messy and to yell and to scream. And I think he gets this insane loyalty once people learn to trust him, which they don't always. I mean, there was a mutiny on MASH because Elliot Gold and um, Donald Sutherland were like, you're treating us like like extras. Yeah. You know, you're, right. you're not caring enough about us. So you're not telling us what's happening. I think by here, if you're on camera in an Altman film in shortcuts, you know you're on camera. Whereas I think yeah. in some of his earlier films, you were just in a big bar and you weren't even sure. I remember that um, <clears throat> seeing interviews around Pret-a-Porter where they said like you know, there would be these crowd scenes and you didn't know if you were being filmed essentially. Like you had to act like this was your scene, even if you were, you know, somewhere in the corner having a conversation with the waiter or whatever it was. It's like... Um, I mean, that must be fun, right, if you're an actor? I guess it must not be fun if you don't know that what that's what's happening, like you said. <laughs> like, if you're like, oh, I was just, like, saying rhubarb because I thought I was essentially a, a background performer in this. I, I, I would always got the impression that Altman was a bit of a, an ogre and a drinker. Um, but, again, it's hard to tell. I watched some of the extras for this movie, and obviously no one on the, on the extras video are going to go like oh he's a real wanker <laughs> but there, there seemed to be genuine warmth and, and mutual respect between him and the actors and he said he seemed quite self-effacing he was like you know I wouldn't know how to do it any other way without giving the actors space to improvise their lines to work with me on writing their lines and creating their performances and there seemed to be a genuine mutual respect that I was surprised and impressed by which I, I guess I shouldn't be surprised by. There's a um, the the thing that strikes me about it, and and probably engenders that kind of trust and and loyalty, is that for such a massive ensemble film with so many characters, there's very few characters that I could point to and go, I am not interested and engaged. I don't feel like I feel like every character is really fully rounded and fully realised, and it it's not a case of there being leading roles or even leading narratives. Everyone has a little moment to shine, and whether it's um. For example, you know, uh, Jack Lemon telling a story or... Doing his egg trick. Yeah, doing his egg trick or or, or telling this sort of like terrible, embarrassing uh, uh, lack of apology explanation for the terrible events of his uh, the, the breakup of his marriage or uh, uh, Julianne Moore telling a story about the affair that she had or the one night stand she had. There's mm. or, or, or smaller moments. The, 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 the one that really struck me was uh, later on in the film when uh, the baker, Lyle Lovett, reconciles with the um what i feel is the the main story of the film the um the finning and couple and the injury of their son uh casey um all of these moments all of these little bits of storytelling feel like they're feel like they're they're actors who are given chance to give a really complete performance uh and and working in a big ensemble film maybe big budget and maybe feeling like it's uh, uh more more intimate little vignettes I think that that kind of experience probably would generate an awful lot of loyalty and being trusted to do big long takes and you know take characters to the extremes of emotion. It's a it's a really striking piece of filmmaking for such a massive number of characters and stories for me. Right, I mean nobody is the girlfriend or the mean <laughs> boss, <laughs> which is what I appreciate. Maybe that maybe that is my my Freudian slip of saying there wasn't enough misogyny. It actually kind of works because I appreciate that about his films that even when you have somebody like Tom Waits, yeah. 
you you get this baked into him, you know, this kind of subplot of this idea that like when he was around his his stepdaughter, Honey Bush, that you get this sense that he definitely got drunk, definitely hit on her, made her incredibly uncomfortable. Yes. He claims not to have touched her. She definitely seems very uncomfortable around yeah. him in a way yes. that she's not being listened to. And there's never even a centerpiece scene about it. There's like a couple of throwaway lines. Yeah. There's her action around him. Which is so realistic, isn't it, in terms of the way that I guess young women have to kind of uh, moderate and uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Manage the, the adults in their lives there. That you know, because because if she said, "Oh, you know, he touched me," that would cause so much trouble, and that would potentially cause a rift with her mother and and in the in the relationship. And so she has to kind of carry the emotional weight of, of dealing with that, right? Yeah, exactly true. And that you don't get that lazy show PC that I think another filmmaker would do. Like, this is the scene where I'm going to convince my mom of whatever it is that he did to me. Yeah, and everyone bursts into tears yeah. and it's an Oscar moment. In yeah. a way, that's it's a shortcut like the title. You can get a sense of what happened mm. and she just cuts past it because she knows her mother, mother doesn't want to hear it anymore and it doesn't mm. matter. But yeah. that he put this into this character who we really want to like. I yeah. mean, how much do we want to like He's kind like of a comic, quite comical character for a lot of it. Like that moment where he, um, they have an argument, he storms out and he throws that stupid little miniature bottle onto the sidewalk <laughs> and it bounces up in the air. I'm and getting drunk right now. He just look, he's so ridiculous. What was that line he shouts as he's leaving the house? Uh, You're the one chipping away at the mansion of our love, baby. Yeah, <laughs> like, which that. is a Tom Waits title if I've ever heard one. Yeah, yeah. that feels like a... <laughs> it was. It, it's more the um, uh, these relationships and how they affect the kids that I thought was the main thrust of this story. I think it's. I think it's clear that Altman is painting a picture of a bunch of pretty despicable men and the uh the less none of the men in this are good no like none and i would argue the only man who isn't kind of a bit of a douchebag is is howard um finnegan yeah the newscaster which we don't learn that much about and i think so you know we talk um we talk about the finnegan story being the central story of the film arguably it sort of is because it's the the most tense and saddest and lots of things hinge on it but we don't find that much about the couple. I don't. I get much of a less of a sense of that family than any other other of the characters. Well, but the the thing that I think is really important about all of these families is it's it, the the women are sort of victims of the men, but more importantly, the children are victims of their parents. Um, uh, and I think in all of these relationships, you know, the kids are the, the women aren't coming off well, but the kids are coming off worse. And whether it's like, you know, Jennifer Jason Lee uh, doing her s- sex calls while, you know, bringing up these kids and, you know, the concern that Chris Penn's character has over that or Casey and, and his like overly smothered or neglected um, stuff and Lily Taylor's character, you know, the, the the question about how she was treated as a child. It's it, it, I feel for all of these kids so desperately and I'm so worried about all of them. <laughs> I mean, what you, you sort of hit on this this idea of like Robert Altman is interested in the concept or exploring the concept of misogyny. Like, what do you think about how he does that in this film? Well, I think if there is a second theme besides the children who seem to be just underfoot in a pain to every man in the <laughs> film, is like enough with these kids. I hate all of them. Or dogs, dogs and children. Yeah, dogs and children. Yeah. Just in the way. Get Never work with either of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the film continually has a comment on how women are hurt by men or treated as disposable or even men who aren't don't think of themselves as villains like the fishermen. Yeah. Can rank fishing above finding finding a woman and getting getting help for a woman who was murdered. Yeah. You know, and there and then um that the film even kind of ends with this really sour punchline of a joke that Chris Penn in a plot point and I totally buy has snapped and decided to beat up this woman that they just met with beer bottles. 
um, and kill her. And then he gets away with it because they can pretend that it was just an earthquake rubble disaster. Yeah. And so that's just that. I mean, there's a stacking up of dead bodies in this movie. That was one of the things I had a problem with. I was like, I buy everything apart from the amount of death. Like the, uh, and without spoiling the some of the major plot points, there's a lot of death and injury in this film. Like I could sort of buy that all of these characters might interact glancingly, but not that about twenty percent of the cast die. Um, but no, you're absolutely right. I mean that. that so I in in the, the, the you know, I've seen I saw Robert Altman describe Chris Penn's character who uh, as a sort of Lenny from Of Mice and Men, someone who was clearly troubled. Um, by his life, by his wife's sex work, but doesn't have the emotional capacity to process it. I think Chris Penn's performance in this film is is kind of um, fantastic. I think I think I I, I sympathise with him and loathe him in equal measure, almost all the way through the film. I wonder what kind of film Altman thought he was making. Like, I wonder whether he thought he was making a film about flawed people. Which at the time it sort of makes sense, but now I look at it and I'm seeing it. You see it more structurally. Like all of these women are trapped in difficult relationships. Like none of these men are any good. There's not really any alternative from the lives that they're they're, they're leading. I mean, they can go to another shitty man, like Frances McDormand, works her way through a chain of shitty men, but that's that's as good as it as it gets, really. And so I wonder, like, does yeah, to what extent? Was Robert Altman viewing the film the way yeah. we view it in 2020? I don't know. Or to what extent was he viewing it as maybe an antidote to a lot of bullshit? You know, the, yeah. the most Hollywood films are like, he's a good guy, he's just yeah. a little bungly, and she's a good girl, her shoes just always break when she runs, and yeah. then everybody's happy. Like, if he's just, if he's really just pushing the sour reality, like the messy kitchens and everything over to this side to try to counterbalance what he sees is a lot of. Vapidity. I think that's definitely definitely the case. Yeah, there's one plotline that did make me wonder about his intentions, which is the Francis McDormand plotline, which is like she is being bothered by a needy ex-husband, and she's Stormy sort of, Weathers, the, the Stormy best Weathers. character in this. <laughs> that's a great one. And she's uh, you know had a chain of relationships, uh, often playing them off against each other, uh, and the sort of comeuppance for that character for for Francis McDormand's character is that Stormy Weathers goes in with a chainsaw and, and saws all of her possessions into tiny pieces which is a very funny scene but then you go like but but for what like he has no he should have what does he think he has dominion over her romantic life why does he why does the does the filmmaker think this is a just desserts for a character that is after all just and she's a bit of a grifter but she's just living a life the th- the thing that I wonder is whether there's the thing that he's pushing against, along with all sorts of other things to do with Hollywood, is this idea of just desserts, of of fairness or or justice for any of these characters. This, but that train see, that chainsaw scene is, I think, played for laughs, and it is quite a funny light scene. But if you could, you could very easily imagine it being, you know, a kind of fatal attractions type scene where this crazy ex-husband comes in and like ruins all her stuff which is what's happened well you don't even yeah. need to have really imagine it because playing out almost simultaneously is chris penn's story where he, yes. he does exactly that thing um and i think that both of those characters feel uh not to, not to excuse it but to feel wronged by the women in their life and their responses are very similar mm. it's just that the outcome is uh, different intensities and different extremes and different moments, and there's there's uh, there is no sense of like right and wrong. I think in any of these stories, I think that 
and, and going back to Tom Waits and Lily Tomlin, those two seem the happiest in the moment of the uh, the earthquake at the end. But arguably, uh, the uh, the actions and the accident that uh, Doreen uh, is part of leads to one of the most some of the most tragic events in the film. You know that that that's the the strongest example of a lack of fairness in the story that uh, Altman seems to be telling. And I think that that's sort of what the stories of Carver seem to be about as well, about, you know, people who are bad and people who have good intentions and people have bad intentions and things turn out one way or the other. And I'll be honest, I really like that worldview. I mean, I, I at least be- I believe in that worldview. I find peace in that worldview that, mm. you know, you could do the best that you can. And you can't always control the outcome. And if you're expecting it to be fair, it's, life's going to be much harder. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I respect of I respect that approach definitely in the work of Carver and also in this film because it at least treats you like a grown-up in the audience. Yeah. Like you don't need to be sold a fairy tale. Mm. You know? And and so, I don't know. Like, it, it, for me, it is so hard, though, to tell. Like, if he's commenting on, on the fact that people treat women like objects in here. Because you're exactly right, I think, to your point, that all of these men feel like they are the, the person who has been wronged. Mm. And I think he's very aware that they're all nonsense. <laughs> you know? And, mm. and we kind of, he like, maybe he lets us play along with the character just long enough so that when he yanks the rope back, we feel <laughs> even worse. The way that I feel that I love, I love, I love Earl so much. Earl's so funny. When Earl is drinking... Mar- Mar- what margaritas or pina coladas yeah, yeah. when he's drinking pina coladas and wearing a lei and singing a made up <laughs> very made up fun song about I'm gonna get you out of Downey I love him and I forgive mm. him in that moment for molesting his stepdaughter that's crazy why mm. am I doing that and I think he's aware of the levers he's playing I mean not to excuse the character's actions but I think it's deliberately less le- I think the ambiguity around what happened with his stepdaughter is important because if you if we unambiguously knew what had happened I think we would find it much harder to relate we know something occurred that made her feel uncomfortable um but we don't know exactly what it, what that was so I, I guess that makes us easier as an audience member kind of almost like lily tomlin's character to forgive whatever that thing was if we don't quite know what it was what do you think he gets out of casting tom waits for that part because he could clearly have any actor he wants on the planet um i i don't know how to answer that apart from it feels so Tom Waits in like so much of the film, like the, the 1970s Tom Waits life of hanging out in diners, you know, when he finished his gigs till 6am and eating egg, eggs and sausage as the sun came up. Like that feels very Waits in. So Tom Waits in a diner, even, I mean, I guess 15, 20 years on from that heyday of his, his era feels perfect to me. And that's interesting. It feels like a very, it feels very 70s. Like in terms of its color palette, there's a lot of kind of, Beiges yes, that's happening, true. <laughs> happening, even though it was a film made in the 90s. And I, and I find that, and obviously the, many of the short stories were written in the 70s, some of them were written a little bit later in the early 80s. And I find that very interesting that like, with only just a bit of refraction, something that feels like a very 70s world still works. Right, yeah, because I mean, it feels like the gap between 1970s and Los Angeles and 1990s Los Angeles isn't nearly as big as the gap between 1990s Los Angeles and right. 2020 Los Angeles. Yeah, it's it's hard to imagine this world playing out in the. You know, what I always see, and it, it sounds so cliche, but whenever I see a movie that takes place in a pre cell phone, pre internet world, you yeah. just get aware of how people filled up their time and their space yes. differently. Yeah. That yeah. people go to dinner parties because they don't have much else to do. So, like, yeah. have people come over for dinner, and the women get bored and they put on her clown costumes and they That's fill such time. a fun scene. I really enjoyed that. You know, but they're, they're <laughs> yeah, filling yeah. time with each other and yes. talking and thinking and reading yeah, and yeah. doing stuff. Yeah. 
Arguing quite a lot of the time. Arguing, arguing, drinking, going out. Like, Having sex quite a lot of the time because there's not much else to do. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't the 1990s. It wasn't the 1890s, but yeah. But it does, it does feel far away to me. It does, you know? Mm. Yeah, I can't remember. There were a couple of scenes. I can't remember specifically which ones that they were where I was like, uh, oh, is that a scene with the, with the fishermen where they're like, oh, we haven't got this kind of high-tech mobile yeah. phone. We can't call the police. But it's like, no, they're just... I mean, I guess they'd have to walk for a couple of miles to get and, cell service. And Chris Penn does have like a, a classic 80s brick phone that he talks to oh, yes, Robert Downey Jr. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's a strange image of uh, separation for all of these characters, even as we're told a story about how they're all living on top of each other and running into each other accidentally. Um, some of that stuff I find a little like LA is a big city, and presumably, um, the, especially if they're going out as far as Downey. I've never yeah. even been to Downey. I'd love to go to Downey now. I want to go to that Downey. <laughs> um, but there's but the, the 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 couple, the the doctor and the artist, like they live somewhere pretty fancy. They're not living in Downey. They're living in like Santa Monica or Beverly Hills or something. Right? Yes, yeah, somewhere, somewhere. They, they're on a hill, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess be on a hill overlooking the valley, but they're on the valley side of it. Oh, they are. Okay, okay. So. Oh, I have no idea. I'm just guessing. Right, right. Yeah. Well, you know the city, city better than I do. So, um, but yeah, it does feel like a pretty widespread. So I, I do wonder sometimes some of those moments are a little contrived, but they don't bother, bother me. The idea that um, you know two people might bump into each other at a photo processing station, you know, that, of course that could happen at any any point, couldn't it? I think that that um, Altman talks about one of the reasons that they uh, transferred it to California. Uh, they they wanted to place the action in a vast suburban setting, so it would be fortuitous for the characters that they to would meet. bump into each other. So in a right, way, right. while it is unlikely, I mean, I guess all films are about unlikely events. So, you know, we, we happen to be following the person who is, you know, the one true heir to Excalibur or whatever. In this case, it happens to be a bunch of stories that do overlap and intersect. Uh, and a city like LA is big enough and small enough that that's surprising and incredible at the same time. Oh, well, what do you think also, I mean, because you guys are the music people, you're the music experts, I'm just a movie critic. <laughs> no, I not mean, experts, we, we do it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but he doesn't just have one musician in here, he has three. He, he has mm. Tom Waits, he has Lyle Lovett, and he has Huey Lewis. Yeah. And that's a gets, strange choice, he's quite good in the, in the movie, I think. He gets good performances, I feel like. So one them. thing I would say, I did, I, I did watch a, an... Um, an outtake scene with with Lyle Lovett, which is a longer scene in the bakery where the parents meet him and have a have that sort of reconciliation, um, and it's not that good. Oh, really? No, it's 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 closer to the original text of the short story about um, the baker. Andy Bitkow says, you know, um, explains a bit more about I'm sorry, uh, I'm sorry for my part in this, and. Um, Similar, similar kind of content to the stuff we see on screen. Of you know, I work sixteen hours a day as a baker, and I've lost sight of being a human being because I'm just a baker, and um, it's not that great. So, no shade on Lyle Lovett. I think he's great on in the stuff that we see, but in that scene, it doesn't doesn't exactly work. So, I think again with Tom Waits, like he's a funny and interesting character, and he has some good moments. Like he's good at starting going to diners and trying to start fights in jazz clubs, but maybe you know you wouldn't give him like a big emotional monologue. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some judicious use of acting and editing, actors and, and editing. Because uh, I was thinking that that Waits looks more like himself than yeah. in almost any other film I've seen up until this point, at least. This is sort of vaguely contemporaneous with Dracula, where he's not playing anything like himself. But <laughs> in all of the other films that we've seen up to this point, uh, sort of pre-1990, he always looks like he's trying to pretend to be an older, weirder, straighter odder man than than he is and here i felt like he was cast and given the opportunity to play himself like even in um 
uh, um, oh, what's in Rumblefish where he is playing like a crazy a weird beat, yeah. you know, grumbling and talking nonsense. It sort of feels like a more theatrical performance. Whereas this, it feels mm. like he just turned up on set and he happened to be saying the right things at the right time. It's, yeah. There's, again, in the documentary, there's quite nice scenes with him and Lily Tomlin where he's complimenting her on her waitressing ability, which is very sweet. And she's like, yeah, I've got a backup if I need it. <laughs> and he sounds very sincere and he compliments her on how she plates food in their own house. Oh, yes. He says he make, make, you make it look so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so, I mean, so <clears throat> one of the changes I noticed from the short stories I read, which wasn't all of them in, in the film, is that the short stories seem much more open-ended. So uh, in that, that storyline, the Tom Waits, Little Tomlin storyline, it ends with him sort of, you know, showing off his wife to the patrons of the of the diner, and everyone look at looking at him like he's a weirdo because he kind of that's a very strange behaviour born out of his own insecurity, and and um, and you don't really see, know what happens to the to the couple whether they kind of carry on or if that's that's that becomes a problem in their relationship. Um, whereas in in the film, there's a very clear reconciliation, and they're back together and they're having a good time again. And I feel like that, that with a lot of the the storylines, um, they're not. Um, uh, really left hanging. That's true. Although for them to be back together, she has to accept that he's now totally drunk again. Yeah, they just have to drink together. But she has that line, doesn't she, early on, where she says uh, he's drinking again and he's mean. Like he never used to be mean. We had a good time together. Mm-hmm. So you get the sense that it's a yeah. couple that's sort of brought together by getting pissed, I mean, pissed up. I think they're definitely going to be in another fight in a week. Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they, they, I think they, this is what they do. The sunset happily ever after. That's, uh, <laughs> such a disappointment. I don't. Do you think they're going to get out of Downey? No, 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 no. no. He's a, he's a sort of, uh, yeah, he's a dreamer, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Or well, he promises a lot at least. There's a um, there's a, there's a thread running through this film that relates to that though, that about people who are happy and come to terms and come to peace in the life that they have, the life that they lead, the choices they've made, and people who. Uh, feel feel incapable of accepting the person in front of them, the the lifestyle that they have. Um, uh, I was thinking about the the Fred Ward character, who's uh, you know the 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 guy who the leader of that group of fishermen in a way who um, who discovers mm. the body in the water, um, and how he's he's someone who seems almost the the most at peace with the life he has and uh you know is 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 uncomfortable in many situations i feel like he's getting it and gets it wrong a lot in the relationship but then surrounding him and all of the other a lot of the other characters feel like they wish they were somewhere else um and i i kept thinking back to the opening of the film where um effectively stormy weathers uh, interacts with the entirety of the cast and uh, the rest of the population of LA by spraying them all with this, you know, insect repellent. Um, and this idea of like LA and this whole this whole town and all of these interactions being something that you know they they actually should uh, sort of like poison the whole land and 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 quit all of these interactions, all these relationships, and up sticks and start again somewhere else because everyone seems to want to leave, right? I feel like there's a wonderful sort of kinship between a lot of the women in these films, especially the friends. And also some of the mothers and mother and daughter relationships, though some of them are less functional. Um, I just love that there's so many scenes where like a, a male character will leave the room and then all of the women will just laugh <laughs> with the, the ridiculousness <laughs> of that character's reaction. Like when uh, Gene the cop has like made up some ridiculous story about going undercover 
to what, infiltrate a clown syndicate or something? I don't know, <laughs> like that, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and there's a scene where um, Madeleine Stowe is, is modelling for um, Julianne Moore. Is that the right way around? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where Mad- um, and I'm uh, uh, modelling nude and her, uh, Julianne Moore husband comes in and is trying to have a normal conversation but is obviously incredibly uncomfortable with what's <laughs> happening just delivering and a bag of lemons but just just the um i just think the female cast in this is uh, is is amazing like it's just absolutely stacked like every sort of respected almost every respected indie actor of the 90s is in this uh movie and so many great it's really hard to pick out like which are the which is a, like a, a, a stronger performance? I didn't love Andy McDowell's performance in this. Actually, that's the one where I was like, eh. I thought she was really good right up until the the breakdown with uh, Lal Love It. I totally believed yeah. her. She she was sort of doing a different style of acting from a lot of other people, but um, yeah, yeah, I agree. But doing something also different from the kind of like, uh, uh, well, the the girlfriend role, um, uh, the the love interest role that she mostly done up until this point, and something you know, working hard to be slightly buttoned down, slightly repressed mother yeah. and yeah. wife. It felt the closest to Sex Life and Videotape for me. That kind of like purest, That's like very, very nervous, virginal yeah. uh, wife who doesn't know what to do besides be a wife. Right, interesting. But for me, I think the weak link in all the characters, and I love what you were saying, Martin, about the teamwork that you see with the women. They all yeah. kind of do have each other's back. They're all keeping each other in as check. Much like, as they oh, can, that yeah. was nonsense. And yeah, um, it, the, the basketball player cellist, cellist. Yeah. I think she's the weakest yeah. thing in terms of the character. I just get nothing out of that character at all, and I don't really buy that character or her choices. No, she's bad. kind of inter- she's very internalized, and there's one scene which is meant to, I think, eliminate her internal life, which is when they're at the cello re- uh, rehearsal with her quintet, and then the violin player starts asking her about, like, how's your mum doing? And it's she's meant to be kind of cutting between technical discussion of the music and, and a talk about her mother's alcoholism, I guess. But it just doesn't... Like she doesn't sell it very well. It doesn't work that the, the, the shift register doesn't work that well. And so you, and that's meant to be the scene where you really understand her angst and you know the the pain that she goes through throughout the film. And I and I don't, I didn't connect with that scene very well. Yeah, and I kind of I can't really put the math together that she's a woman who's always practicing her virtuoso cello skills, but then also killing it on the basketball court with the neighborhood <laughs> kids, where she seems to be social and has friends until she seems to be very isolated, yes, whatever the script wants answer. her to yeah, be. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't make yeah, sense yeah. to me at all. Yeah. No, the, um, the, I think you're right. The biggest weakest link, that, the biggest weak link that I found and actually illuminated something which uh, uh, me and my girlfriend were, were discussing, can Tim Robbins act... He's he's like he's a ridiculous character, and but he seems to be operating like on in a different gear, in a higher sort of like scene chewing level than almost anyone else in the film. Yeah, he's more theater, right? He's more like commedia dell'arte. It feels a bit projecting. He's not very naturalistic, that's for sure. (laughs) No, you know, but his one of his sons, Miles Robbins, I think, is a really terrific actor. I mean, he he kind of, he kind of straddles that same every man but cooked up into a strange kooky level. Mm. Thing. I don't know. I think like I think the Robinses have a lot of I don't know like bungling heart to them. I I find him likable as a performer. Yeah. Like that that character is a the worst. Of course he's a cop. Of course he's a cop. <laughs> but in and he's yelling out trying to save everybody with the bullhorn, but not really. Just being like, I'm a cop. I'm and Everything's fine. Yeah, exactly. He's, he, uh, the, uh, there's a scene. Uh, there's a um, in the making of uh, Featurette, there's, uh, there's an interview with, with um, 
Tim Robinson, he says, you probably met a guy like, guy like this before. It doesn't matter that he's a cop. And you're like, it absolutely matters that he's a cop. He's just a little petty authoritarian. Oh, when he pulls the clown girl over, I want to yeah. kill him. He's so but, but then I think, I think that's kind of a brilliant performance as well. Like I question whether he can act in kind of a joking way, but he is very <laughs> much that kind of everyman character who wishes he was, you know, the, 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 the James Dean of this particular, of his, of his own particular life. Um, and that, and that failure is, is really entertaining. Just to jump in, Ann Archer, who plays the clown, was uh, had a role in Tom Waits' first movie, Paradise Alley, 1978. Oh, really? Yeah. Sylvester Stallone film. Very strange film. <laughs> I like to think of Tim Robbins and Jennifer Jason Leigh uh, going between the set for Shortcuts and the Hudsucker Proxy, which I think came out pretty much the same year oh as well. Oh, my God, she's so good in that. I'd forgotten that. I mean, they're both amazing in, in both films, but in very different ways. <laughs> Amazement yeah. is, uh, is, is, is the consistent element. So, I think she really is one of our national treasures. Jennifer she's Jason amazing. Lee. She's really great in that in, in, in uh, shortcuts too. I think. So uh, I'd like to, if I may, maybe jump into the music of the film a little bit. Um, we talked about Laurie Singer, the cellist. Uh, you may we have certainly had reservations about her character and her portrayal of the character. Her cello playing, I think, is amazing, fantastic, and you just can't fake that. Like uh, you know, you see so many films where there's someone. You know, there's a piano player, you can't quite see their hands, they're just sort of waving them around vaguely. And she, you, know, you can tell she's playing the instrument and it really, that is part of the character, I think. Um, yeah, her, her, her curled toes with the dirty loose socks falling <laughs> off of them oh, is right. perfect. Um, but she's not the only, I mean, music is such a big part of this film. It's quite interesting the way it's woven in. So um, I was excited to see that um, uh, Lois Singer's mother's character, uh, Annie, played by Annie Ross, yeah. Uh, is a jazz singer and her bass player is Greg Cohen who is Tom Waits' kind of long-time bass player but also musical director um, so it's nice to hear I was, saw his moustache cropping up I'm like is that, is that Greg Cohen? Um, <laughs> I so had to wait for the credits I wasn't I wasn't that switched on to his uh, moustache performance oh I reckon I can recognise Greg Cohen's moustache uh, from 100 uh, yards <laughs> yeah two, two LA zip codes um, but um, I didn't I don't love the style of jazz that Annie Ross performs in the film um but no interestingly like a lot of those tracks were written by Dr. John yes oh really and you can actually hear those songs if you watch the DVD there's demos of those as performed by Dr. John and they're not they're a lot better like in that kind of slightly more loose um piano focused New Orleans style they've got a lot more they, they, they seem to have a lot more heart I find that very that very dry Delivery, which certainly gets the lyric across, but mm. I don't, I don't love the sort of uh, tonality of the singing. I mean, no. she's, she's, I mean, it feels a little old-fashioned for the '90s. It's hard for me yeah. to imagine yeah. that club existing with her singing in it. Well, you sort 90s, of, even though I know she was a real singer here, but you're sort, you're sort of meant to think that she's a a jazz singer who is past her glory days, aren't you? You are, but that the bar's still really full. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and there's a lot of young hip people in there. But they're all well, there going like, oh, this music's terrible. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's only there? Tom Waits who's having a good time, almost everyone else. I think Tom Robert Downey Jr. It. and uh, Lily really Taylor go in twice, and both times they're pretty they sneery and dismissive. <laughs> that's true, but they're still there. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's the only place open, clearly, I mean, in LA. I hope it's yeah, not a very we are a lively very nightlife town. <laughs> there's nothing happening here, especially not in the early 90s. Only, is there any live music happens in Los Angeles? Oh, no. The, the Sunset Strip was obliterated in a nuclear fire before <laughs> this movie came out. <laughs> the Medfi spraying, spraying of 1992. 
Very sad. <laughs> it was in, it's interesting though talking about the, the the music for the film in general because there is quite a lot of um, quite loose uh, jazz music laid over, particularly like the um, uh, the linking moments as uh, the, the beginning of a new scene as we come out of a, another scene. But I only mm. noticed it about two hours in. Uh, and I don't know whether that <laughs> speaks well of it or uh, little of it, but it seemed very natural, it seemed very organic, and it didn't like jump out at me in any way. The way that say like the the Amy Mann music does in Magnolia. Massive, oh yeah, yeah. That's I mean that's very deliberate, isn't it? That scene with the falling frogs, like yeah. that, and her song. Spoiler, like, really spoiler, the Martin. whole thing together. Sorry, uh, that <laughs> scene where it rains in LA, which never happens. <laughs> It is. I mean, I was a, I was too young to be in the theater for both of these films in the '90s. But I'm, it's strange to try to picture what it must have been like to see Shortcuts, love it, and then see Magnolia and think, how did you lay the exact same united plot moment into the into the third act of both films? Well, it's a, it's an homage, isn't it? I mean, but we see the aftermath in Magnolia, and like it's not as destructive. Like the the frogs is sort of a surreal, almost like uh, where char- I, I don't know. Like as a viewer, you sort of recalibrate reality that you see something very strange and very wonderful can happen whereas um yeah in at the end of shortcuts it feels almost like a kind of clean slate doesn't it it's like you know chris penn is going to get away with that murder and you know uh you know lily and tom have a to- story to tell and it sort of draws the draws the character there's a um there's a chunk of text uh written by altman again for this into this this introduction collaborating with carver where he talks about um someone wins the lottery the same day that person's sister gets killed by a brick falling off a building in seattle and those are both the same thing the lottery was won both ways uh, one got killed and the other got mm. rich but it's the same action um and i feel like that kind of lack of fairness is the focus of this interweaving thing with a huge event at the end uh but as ricky jay's uh, narrator in magnolia tells us it's less to do with fairness or unfairness it's to do with it could never happen and yet it did like this like, intersection of impossibility and actuality um and while i think you know i think a lot of paul thomas anderson both positive and negative he's clearly a massive devotee an, an acolyte of um of of uh, altman's uh and so I, I I see that 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 commonality that 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 repetition as just a huge homage to go this 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 kind of filmmaking is amazing and more people should go back and watch shortcuts as well. It really felt like the kind of film that was happening at the time though. Like I felt like in its own way, even though it's probably only a year later, like Pulp Fiction, which was such a huge film, at least for me and my friends. I don't I don't know you know whether how well it did the box office. Um, tells a similar story. It's much more mm-hmm. violent and stylized, but it's still these multiple overlapping. Stories that are told, you know, maybe non chronologically, but the characters inter- intersect each other. Um, and still in the valley. I mean, like, yeah. Shortcuts, Pulp Fiction, and Magnolia are all valley stories. They're not LA stories. You know, they're not Hollywood. They're not even downtown. They're not, they're so not what on does this that, side. What does that mean for like an LA person? What's the connotation that, that they're in? Is, it, is this like, is the valley like a hinterland as far as like Hollywood people are concerned? Kind of. I mean, Altman said that he considers the Los Angeles Valley to be a nothingville. Like it's it's a mm. nowhere. Right. It's like saying anywhere USA because it's so interesting, giant and void. So of, it could be Ohio or yeah, Illinois or, yeah. But right. that it's I guess it's LA's Ohio or I don't know like that. Yeah, yeah. That maybe maybe not. I think I'm explaining this wrong. Maybe he sees it as Main Street anywhere USA. You know. We film everything in Los Angeles. We film so much in the Valley. It it has become a stand-in for all of America. Mm-hmm. And so something about that vastness and 
kind of hopefulness that gets baked in here. Like everybody who lives here has to be some sort of a dreamer, right? Mm, yeah. Right. Even if they're aware that they're failing at the dream and even if they're not, they're aware that they're not even trying. <laughs> yeah. They're, sure. they're surrounded by people who are at least trying to do better, you know, or doing something with their lives. I, I don't know. I, one of the uh, one of the themes I noticed in the film was like that 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 sense of like what is what is happiness like what motivates these characters in life and I, I, I maybe I was reading too much into this but this kind of reappearance of Alex Trebek and Jeopardy like Jeopardy is a TV show where you know the answer but you don't know the question and I, I almost wonder is, is that the point of this film like what questions these characters ask them? yeah like what what is what is driving them through life you know because you've got characters you've got characters who are rich and professional and successful you've got characters who are artistically and creatively successful mm. you've got characters who have you know stable families and children and all of the things that you might you know american society might uh, aspire towards but you know the artist is bored the 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 doctor is jealous the 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 um women who have children are generally frustrated with their family lives normally because of their husbands being douchebags but well, yeah, and because they keep colliding into each other, they keep comparing themselves. I mean, right, you have Lily yeah. Tomlin and her boyfriend. They live in the same apartment complex as the people with the nice fish, but they have a much nicer apartment. Right, right. When you have the dinner party between the two more like bougie couples, the artist and the doctor. Yeah. I mean, the other couple coming over who's grumbling about it, she's a clown and he's out of work. He's an out-of-work yeah. salesman. And you yeah. can sense that even though they're drunk and getting along for the moment. Yeah. I felt like you could feel the class tension when they yeah. show up. That oh, yeah. Well, where he's like, oh, I should have parked three blocks away because exactly. they're embarrassed about the clown car. Exactly. And actually, there's there's not many films that you get set in like the, the, uh, the, the that are about America that are about class as much as this. I feel that's much more something that yeah. he, that Altman gets involved with, with Gosford Park, like, you know, um, uh, mm-hmm. 10 years later or so. But um, I don't feel like the preoccupations of class happen in these American films as much as British films. Well, I certainly feel in I certainly feel in American culture like the question of money is just so often glossed over. Like I think about like a TV series like Roseanne, and it felt um, like revolutionary because they had arguments about money yeah. and how about they couldn't afford stuff. And you don't often see that. And I assume it's because screenwriters and directors who get to make Hollywood movies are probably doing pretty well at that point, and they're not thinking about where their rent, next rent check is going to come from or how they afford you know dental surgery for their children or whatever the thing is. But it is pretty absent in, like, I think in British cinema too, but certainly in American cinema. Yeah, I think America's really gu- guilty of having an even more extreme default normal. You know, if <laughs> yes. our default normal of city rich. is, like, sunshiny and pretty and suburban with diners, yeah, our default but... normal is, like, maybe a character be like, oh, ouch, I didn't want to buy a new car. That's expensive. But it's not, <laughs> I can't get food now. But not... I mean, even with this film, I still feel like there's the, there's the division. Like, there's people who are out of work, um... Like Tom Waits is basically out of work. He's doing the odd, the odd, odd gig and, and then Fred Ward's character. And there's people who are super successful. And then yeah, I guess there are people in the middle. I guess that, that that's the sort of bit that's more interesting. Like Lily Tomlin, Jennifer Jason Lee, like they're doing work, which is maybe... Yeah, they seem pretty happy in their work, actually. I was about to say, maybe it's not the kind of work they want to do, but actually they, they seem pretty comfortable with Jennifer Jason Lee. It's Chris Penn's insecurities and judgments that are the problem, not... She's, you know, she seems reasonably happy doing the job doesn't seem like a worse job than, you know, yeah. Lily Tomlin's job to her. That's true. And I wonder, I kept noticing how many houses and cars in here had a sign for sale. It seems like everything Lily Tomlin touches looks like it's for sale. There's a, a for sale sign in her car even when she has oh, the car that's accident. That's true. Yes, that's true. And I, I don't know what that is about. I feel like she had a for sale sign in her front yard. If it wasn't her, some other character does. Oh, interesting. But I don't, like, a, what... 
She seems really located. I, I don't know what is for sale. Hmm. Is that just a question of like needing to make... Yeah, is it just hopeful? Like, if you buy this, maybe I can do something else with my life. Yeah, she wants <laughs> yeah, right. to get out. Well, again, mm. uh, she wants to get out. She wants to uh, be driven away in a in a um, uh, a limousine, the life to which you will soon become accustomed, as what it says. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, I wonder, I mean, to kind of cut, bring together a bunch of the threads we were talking about, about especially how this film views men, I did some Googling about the meat flies, you know, that start up here as, as being like the crisis hitting L.A. Yeah. And it turns out that one of that the main way they got rid of the meat flies in Los Angeles, which was a real plague that had happened a couple of years before, was they introduced sterile men meat flies. And they introduced huh. these men who couldn't reproduce into the meat, meat fly population. <laughs> oh, wow. And that's how they wound up killing them. Oh, <laughs> that's so funny. So is this an argument? For forced sterilization of men, or is it just a way of saying like all these men are kind of impotent? Is that is that the kind of metaphor? Because they are all in their own way kind of pathetic human beings, right? The the men in the, in this film, they're they're just hopeless. All of the women are more capable, more mature, and and, and more in charge of their lives. I would say, um, that's a great metaphor. Well, thanks very much for joining us, Amy. Uh, where can people find more of your projects if they'd like to? Oh, sure thing. Uh, I'm a film critic. I write for Variety, for the New York Times, for Washington Post, for a bunch of places. And I host a couple of podcasts. I host a podcast called Unspooled, where we are going through the AFI Top 100. It's me and Paul Shear, who people might know from a bazillion comedy things, but also for hosting the podcast, How Did This Get Made? And yeah, we've been going through the AFI Top 100 one by one. We're in the 80s now, and we've done two Altman films in it. We've done yeah. MASH and Nashville. And I also do a podcast where Martin does the music for it. It's called Zoom. Yeah. It's a miniseries part, uh, podcast for Focus Features, and um, our fifth episode has just come out. What we do is we oh, do a deep dive into <laughs> um, kind of the film lore and history of anything that I find interesting. So we did one on zombies, we did one on um, UFO films, and we just did one on Jane Austen. We're all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> Covering all bases. Well, uh, at more than three hours long uh, and uh, at the time of recording, currently unavailable on streaming services, it's a good thing that, <laughs> that we at Song by Song have taken on shortcuts. Uh, we've really got fe- a finger on the pulse. Yeah, we're really, yeah, 1993 extended cinema. Um, these features unfortunately make it ineligible for two of our fellow podcasts on the Stripped Media Network. Yeah, if Altman had literally cut this film in half, it would have been eligible for the 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival, where Sam Clements and his guests discuss a selection of films uh, none of which are longer than one and a half hours. Um, and if this film was available on Netflix, unfortunately it isn't, but if it was, Helen Sadler and Kobe Abanaka could have discussed it on Flixwatcher. Now, of course, you should check out uh, their shows on the network website, stripped.media, but if you're a monogamous podcast listener and really would rather just listen to Song by Song, stick around here because you'll get a little taste of those shows right here in the coming weeks. We have two crossover episodes coming up next week. We're going to be joined by Sam and Louise for 90 Minutes or Less Music Festival uh, to discuss the 88-minute long Wrist Cutters, A Love Story. Uh, and then in the following week, uh, Kobe and Helen will create with us Flicks by Flicks Watcher. You get the theme. Um, and have a chat with us about 2012's Seven Psychopaths, currently available on the Netflix. Both of those, of course, feature the acting talents of Mr. Tom White. So if you'd like to follow along with us, make sure you have had a watch. If you'd like to get in contact with us, uh, you can do so by emailing us at songbysongpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at songbysongpod. Or find the show on Facebook by searching for Song by Song Show. 
And all of our details are on our website, songbysongpodcast.com. Until next time, I've been Martin Zotzorstwick. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I'm Sam Pei. How about an egg sandwich? With a broke yolk. Yeah, with a broke yolk. Thanks. How'd you get here? Pat brought me. I didn't want to use the car after what happened. Yeah, right. The time you're getting off. About an hour. Let me say I show for you around to the manner in which you are soon to become accustomed. Are you sure? I'm getting us out of here, baby. I'm getting us out of Downey. Till the wheels come off, baby. Till the wheels come off. Song by Song is a proud member of the Stripped Media Network.